And you know what's really great about the resurrection is there is a certain segment of our population, and we're thankful that many of them will be with us on Easter Sunday, who sing about the resurrection only one day out of the year. And that for just a few moments on Easter Sunday. But because of the resurrection, you and I have reason to be here today. If there is no resurrection, Paul said it to the church at Corinth, we are of all people to be pitied. But because there is a resurrection, we have hope. And that's so awesome. I mean, I think about all the people um, that this week took their life because of the despair of things in their life, whether that was sin or some other trouble that they had in their life because they believed there was nothing more. And yet for those of us who have crossed that line of faith, who understand the significance of what Jesus did on the cross and his subsequent resurrection three days later, we have hope because of the resurrection. And that's why we sing the resurrected king one day, (laughs) one day, My death, someday, D.L. Moody said, someday you're going to hear I've died. And he said, on that day, be assured of one thing. I will at that moment be as alive as I have ever been. And that, my friends, is because of the resurrection. And that's awesome. Man, I'm ready to preach Easter Sunday. That's awesome. Can't wait. All right, well, welcome to Northwest Community Church. Well, Jerry uh, started talking Uh, two weeks ago, about uh, a young man named David. David first gained uh, national prominence when he was just a teenager. In fact, as Jerry told you two weeks ago, when he was just a teenager, he killed that great giant Goliath. Interesting thing, every brave so-called Israelite warrior was afraid and was cowering in fear of that man named Goliath, and yet David killed him. And when he did so, it records for us, Scripture does, in 1 Samuel uh, uh, chapter 18, that women all over Israel were singing his praises. They should have told him that there was probably a problem there. Guys weren't so excited, which by the way, that's what happens, right? I mean, women get excited about those things. Guys are just going, I wish I was that guy, right? And he's getting all the attention. But women all over Israel were singing his praises. They were singing, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. And in addition to that, the Bible indicates that he was extremely uh, good-looking. He was an extraordinary athlete, an accomplished musician, and a brilliant poet. David was that guy. That guy who had everything going for him. And now, when we meet him here in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he has become king. He's somewhere in his mid to late 40s, maybe as much as... 50 years old now, there are a lot of books that are written that tell us as men that that's the vulnerable age. That's where he is. He'd accomplished some remarkable things in his life, remarkable military feats. He'd extended the borders of Israel, and he'd secured uh, for them uh, safety. There was no major nation that was a tremendous threat to them. And so he felt that he owed himself a rest. At least so he thought. And that's where our story begins today. The text says in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that it happened in the spring. The historical record says 
It was then that kings who are fulfilling their responsibility, they're supposed to go out to war. That's what kings do. And so it is with us. That's when we get ourselves into trouble. When we are not where we are supposed to be, when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, or secondly, when we've not surrounded ourselves with people who will speak truth into our lives, we're in a dangerous place. Maybe you're one of those people this morning and you've got a bunch of people in your lives, in your life, that tell you exactly what you want to hear. They affirm your life. And in fact, if you look back at your life, there are moments when those same friends should have said something about your life and instead they affirmed your wrong behavior, your wrong choices, your wrong decision making. That's when we get ourselves into trouble, when we begin to believe that the pleasure of a moment is worth the destruction of our life and potentially the lives of others, those we love. That's where David is. It's in the spring when he should be at war and he's not at war. And one night he's enjoying a beautiful spring evening. The eastern monarchs frequently built their master suite on the second floor of the palace and outdoors Uh, They could come out onto an extended balcony, we might call it a uh, a patio roof. And on that roof, on that porch, uh, it would be very luxurious, especially for a king. There would be places for he and his friends and his family to lounge around and enjoy refreshments and enjoy the company of one another. And that's where we find David on this unforgettable night. He noticed something he'd not seen on other nights that he was up there on the patio roof. And he liked what he saw, and um, uh, it was enjoyable uh, to him. Interestingly enough, he saw a woman bathing. Now, um, for you and I, we look at that as very strange, but back in their culture, that would not have been an odd thing at all for a woman to be bathing uh, at the top of her house. And him being in the king's palace was above other homes, and he had quite the view. And the Bible says that she was a very beautiful woman. As we've been walking through the narrative of Scripture, we've referred to this often. Every time that the Bible refers to a woman being very beautiful or a man being very handsome, it means just that, out of the ordinary. If you were to look back in the original language, uh, it means something above average. This is a very, very beautiful woman. David sends somebody to find out who she is, and quickly he knows that she is Bathsheba. And that she indeed is married to one of his warriors, one of the men in his army that is where he is supposed to be, where the king should be, but that didn't matter to David. It's interesting, how does a man, how does a young man go from where David was in fighting Goliath and all the great victories, all the great accomplishments in his life to where he gets to the point where he notices another man's wife and he says, I want her. It doesn't matter who she is. I just say to you, kind of as an aside, those of you men that are in my season of life and you're at that midlife point, when really you should be at the very peak of your life, your influence ought to be incredible. There ought to be influence in your family, influence in your workplace, influence amongst your friends. And yet for many of us, it's at that moment that we begin to buy into the idea that we are the exception to every rule. You see, when we begin to believe 
that we're more than we actually are, when we believe, begin to believe that our satisfaction is, is paramount to what is honorable and what is right, that is where trouble begins. And in fact, Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. David ignores the reality that Bathsheba is married and he asks that she be brought to the palace. Obviously, men that are surrounding him that at any moment could have said, King, I just can't do that. It might have meant their life. It might have certainly meant their job, but they could have said something to him. But instead, they went and got Bathsheba. She came to the palace. They slept together. And not too long later, she sent word to David that she was pregnant. And this becomes a critical moment for David. He can realize the wrong that he's done and confess it and move in a new direction, or he can cover his sin. And we're also faced with that decision many times throughout life, are we not? Maybe that's where some of us are today, if we're really honest. We know that the life that we've been living is a fraud. We have secrets, we have things that nobody else knows, and we've convinced ourselves maybe that nobody else will ever find out. And it's at that moment that we have a choice to make, we can confess or we can cover up. David chooses the latter. David calls Bathsheba's husband Uriah back from the battlefield, thinking if he can get him to come home and sleep with his wife, uh, that that'll provide a cover for David's sin. When the baby is born, everyone will think that Uriah is the father of the child. The problem is that Uriah is a much more honorable man than his king, David. Uriah comes home, and no matter what attempts David makes, and he tries several times, Uriah says, I cannot go home and enjoy my wife and sleep with my wife when I know other men are out in battle. And so he sleeps on the front porch. Now, man, you just think for me for just a moment. You've been on a, you've been on a business trip for a lot of weeks you're provided with an opportunity to go home for a short break, and then you're going to go on the road again. Do you sleep on the front porch? Yeah. The women are laughing because they, they know what the answer is. The kids are going, please move on. I don't want to, I don't want to know. <clears throat> Uriah sleeps on the front porch, and no doubt David is scared and he's frustrated. He has to cover this up. He has to maintain the illusion that everything is fine with him and that he's done nothing wrong. And Uriah is messing up the plan. It's very much the way that many of us are. In fact, if you are really honest this morning, you came in into here with the exact same attitude this morning. You have a cover-up to do. You have an illusion that you have to maintain. And as long as you can maintain that illusion for the people that are sitting around you and you can make them think that you're okay, personally everything's good in your life, your family is great, your marriage is great, your kids are doing just fine, you love your job, you're successful, your finances are just fine, as long as you can maintain that illusion that everything is great and Jesus and life is grand, then you think you've been successful. Problem is that that's not reality. We've said almost since the beginning here at Northwest that we want to be a church that values transparency. And there have been times that uh, even I as a pastor have had to stand up and confess to you uh, that things are not necessarily as they appear. Maybe that's where you are this morning. You see, we all have issues, right? Mine might be different than yours. 
In fact, I might look at yours and see it is not that significant. You may look at mine and see it is not that significant. The problem is we all have issues. We all have problems. But David feels it necessary to maintain the illusion that everything is fine. And so he sends Uriah back to the battlefield with a note to his commanding officer. What Uriah doesn't understand is that inside that note contained the words, put Uriah at the front of the battle line where the, where the fighting is the fiercest. <laughs> it's interesting to me, just as a side note, Uriah being the honorable man that he is, we've already seen that by not being willing to go in and enjoy being with his wife, but laying on the front porch and sleeping there. He carries back with him a note from the king of Israel to give to the commanding officer. How many of you are just like me and you go, I would have had to have peeked inside that note on the way back to the battlefield. I would have done it. I just know I would have, right? Transparency. I just would have done it. I'd have made sure to seal it back carefully. And if I would have done that inside that note, I would have realized that this man wants to kill me. But he doesn't do that, obviously. He brings the note back to uh, Joab, and Joab does exactly what David has told him to do, and Uriah is killed, and Bathsheba begins a mourning process, but not too long after that, she moves into the palace with David and becomes his wife. And David buys into what so many times you and I buy into as well, sin covered, nobody knows. The problem is, even though things seem like they're good, we read at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You see, lives are rarely devastated and broken by one wrong decision made in a vacuum. David's downfall began years earlier. Now keep your finger there in, first, in 2 Samuel 11 and turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 6 because it's there that we hear about David's first wife. Her name was Michael. You remember that David receives her as his wife because he kills Goliath. Saul had offered, to the man that killed Goliath, Saul had offered the opportunity to be exempt from taxes for the rest of your life. That's pretty awesome, right? Along with that, the man who killed Goliath would also be able to marry his daughter, Michael. And so he kills Goliath and eventually... Uh, after Saul makes him jump through a few more hurdles, he marries Michael, and what begins as a fairy tale doesn't stay that way for long. And when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is the king. Things are good for him and for the people of Israel, but David has a strong desire to bring back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And so he makes that his goal and uh, to see that the, the Ark comes back to Jerusalem. And that happens here in chapter 6, and David's really excited about it. 2 Samuel 6, verse 14, it says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Now, uh, this was very undignified for a king to do. Uh, kings wore kingly uh, garments. An ephod would have been just something very simple that a, that a common laborer, a common man would wear. David didn't care. David took all the priestly garments off, I'm sure, because they were uh, pretty confining to him. Um, when I dance, I like to be in just a pair of gym shorts and a t-shirt, just, you know, for me. I mean, that's the way it works best for me. You know, you don't want to be in a suit, right? I mean, that's why I don't dance a lot at weddings. You know, I, 
I prefer, well, there's other reasons why I don't dance at weddings. But, you know, so I'm sure that the king just said, I'm going to take off the kingly garments and I'm going to wear an ephod just like everybody else is wearing. Evidently, everybody else thinks it's a pretty good thing. But Michael watches David as he dances, and evidently she's got a perspective of him, and she's not as pleased with his dance skills. Maybe she's embarrassed by his conduct in front of the other women. Certainly wouldn't be the first time in history where a man has embarrassed his wife. Would it? Women. It wouldn't be the first time. won't be the last. Whatever the reason that she is that she's embarrassed, David comes home after what he considers to be a great day. Uh, you guys know, kids know, wives know, you know that some days dad comes home and he just had a good day, right? And then other days dad comes home and it hadn't been a good day. Maybe the deal that he was working on it didn't happen like he thought. He lost the sale. Something happened at work. He's in a bad mood. Well, David is in a great mood this day. He's excited about what's happened. The ark has come back into Jerusalem, the ark of the covenant. He's excited. He has danced his heart out to the Lord. Everybody around him has gone, oh, sweet moves, unto the Lord. That's beautiful. Look at verse 20. David returns to bless his household. He's going home and he's thinking, this is the after party, right? When I get here, Michael's going to be excited as well. But it says, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Catch the sarcasm. Beep, 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 beep. Sarcasm alert. For those of you that have that in your marriage, I don't. But, I mean, if you, (laughs) my wife doesn't, I do. Sarcasm alert. She says to him, how the king of Israel honored himself today. (laughs) She doesn't really mean that. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants. As one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She didn't like David's dance moves. She did not like his moves. She didn't like how he was clothed. It's at this particular moment David has a decision to make. And so do you and I in our marriages each and every day, don't we? You can engage now. She's obviously ticked, right? This would be a great passage, by the way, when we do a marriage series. Just a fantastic passage. They can engage now in the conflict, so the other other spouse, in this case the husband, David, he has an opportunity. I can give a gentle answer, and as the book of Proverbs says, I can turn away wrath, or I can give grievous words, and that will stir up anger. David chooses the latter. Verse 21, makes husbands feel good all over the globe to read these words. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord. In other words, I did this for the Lord, not for you, woman. I don't really care what you think about my dance moves. I don't want you to care about what you think about my ephod. I don't really care about that. I did this for the Lord. And then notice this, he says, Who chose me above your father and above all his house. In other words, let's not forget that I, sister, am the chosen one. I have the authority, I have the privilege, I have the ability. Now, here's what I've learned, that to attack the in-laws is never a great strategy. All right? Just remember that. Right? You may say, but it needs to be said. I say that on a regular basis. And if it needs to be said, I'm your guy, because I'm going to say it. David feels it needs to be said, and so he attacks the in-laws. He says, I was given, I was appointed as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. 
Verse 22, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. <laughs> um, the BIV, which is the, the Brian International Version, it'd be something like this. If you think that's undignified, if you're embarrassed by that, you just wait, woman. I got more than that. I'll dance. And really, if you were to read commentary on this passage, some would say that he, his intention was, I'll take everything off. I'll dance naked before the Lord. I'll do whatever I need to do because it's for him and not for you. And then notice, he says something very telling then at the end of verse 22. <clears throat> but the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. Do you see it? You see that little crack that's beginning to happen? Really doesn't matter what you think about me because there's a lot of women out here and they think what I just did was pretty spectacular. Verse 23 says, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. That's it. We never read about her again in Scripture. Obviously, the inference there is that David never slept with her again and she died not having any children. David goes on to have many wives longing to satisfy this insatiable sexual desire that he has within himself, looking for love in all the wrong places, certainly with all the wrong women. You know, I can't help but wonder if things might have been different that day if we would have ever read what we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Think about these questions. What if David and Michael would have worked through their disagreement? What if there would have been humility on both sides rather than sarcasm and harsh words? What if David would have included his wife in the celebration? How about that? Honey, the ark has come back into Jerusalem. Let's celebrate. Let's enjoy it together. Come out. Dance with me. I'm taking the kingly garments off. I'm in my ephod. Let's do this. What if he would have done that? What if Michael would have affirmed David's excitement rather than immediately criticizing him? What if David would have tried to understand her disappointment and her frustration and her feelings? What if either of them would have been a peacemaker and fought for the relationship? I thought this week, what if David would have as fiercely fought for his marriage at that moment as he fought that giant named Goliath? You have to ask the question, why does God give us all these details there? What seems to be just like a typical little marital spat, why does he do that? I believe God wants us to have these details for us to understand this principle, and that is this, that most ruined lives are not shipwrecked by a sudden catastrophic storm, but by seemingly insignificant events along the way. I really believe that that's true. Most of the time, it's not this sudden, catastrophic event. Everything has been all right, all around us, and then all of a sudden, something happens. It's little compromise after little compromise after little compromise. It's conflict that's left unresolved. And I want to ask you this this morning. If the walls of your life could speak, what story would they tell about where you are right now? You see, that's the problem is the walls of our life so often can't speak, right? 
I look at you and I look into your faces, but I, I don't know everything that's going on in your life, in your marriage. I don't know what's going on at the workplace. I don't know what it's like between you and your kids. But what would it be if the truth were known about your life? Remember the end of 2 Samuel 11, it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In chapter 12, when David thought he had covered up and hidden so well his sin, it's exposed. And that's the way that it always is. Numbers uh, 32 says um, that you can be sure that your sin is always going to find you out. You can't cover it up. And so David's friend, Nathan the prophet, comes to David and tells him a story. And the story goes something like this. There's two men that are living in the same city. There's a rich man. He's got lots of flocks, lots of herds. There's a poor man, and he's got one little lamb. In fact, he's so poor that that one little lamb has actually become the family pet. It's always very difficult, right? Those of you that live on a farm. When you start giving names to the animals that you know you're going to kill and you're going to eat one day, right? That's what this family had, you know? They slept with a little lamb. They took care of the little lamb. This is a family pet. This rich guy, he's got all kinds. He doesn't even name them, right? A friend visits the rich man, Nathan says, and he doesn't want to take an animal out of his own uh, uh, flock or herd to feed his friend. So he takes the poor man's family pet. And Nathan looks at David and says, how do you feel about that, king? And the king, Scripture says, is indignant. He's angry at the rich man. He tells Nathan that this man deserves to die and he should make restitution at least fourfold. Interesting to me that in spite of his obvious sin, David gives a pretty good speech if you read it there in 2 Samuel chapter 12. It's that way for me. Is it that way for you? So many times in my life when I know I am wrong, God has made the sin so evident to me in my life. The Spirit of God is just blaring a siren out at me, and yet I can give an incredible speech which will make, it, make you think everything is okay. Is it ever that way with you? That's what David does. He gives an incredible speech in front of Nathan the prophet. It's such a frightening position to be in. The ability to be able to talk the talk, but not having walked the walk. Nathan tells David in verse 7, you're the rich man in my story, and your sin is going to have incredible consequences. Verse 10 says, the sword will never depart from your house. The consequences will extend to others in your family. Verse 14 says that the, womb, that the child that was conceived in this adulterous affair with Bathsheba is going to die. His wives and his children would also suffer the consequences. David acknowledges his sin in chapter 12, verse 13. Nathan tells him that he's not going to die, but the consequences are going to last for generations to come. How bad did it get? David has a son named Amnon who rapes his half-sister Tamar. Tamar tells her brother Absalom. Absalom, for two years, plots his revenge on his brother Amnon. He goes and he kills Amnon. This starts a civil war in the kingdom, and it ultimately leads to Absalom's death. We look back at David with that great giant, Goliath, and we think, how does a man get there? How does that happen? The long-reaching effect of a moment of sinful self-indulgence can be so 
dangerous. And often we learn these lessons the hard way. Sin will take you further than you ever wanted to go. You never sit down plotting out the course that sin is going to take you. It always takes you further down the road than you think it's going to take you. Sin always keeps you longer than you ever wanted to stay. For most of us, when we make, when we make decisions to, uh, to participate in sinful behavior, we expect it just to be a moment of time. I can't tell you how many high school kids and college kids that I've had tell me with their, with their drinking and with and, and with drugs. It's just for now. I'm in college. I, I'll, I'll stop that. And yet then in their late 20s. Their early 30s. For some into their 40s. I heard a story just back in December. About a man. Started when he was age 14. And at age 44 has become an alcoholic. And has struggled with it for 30 long years. That's because sin keeps you longer. Than you ever wanted to stay. And then lastly. Sin will cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. This morning as we close, I I want to tell you that you can find yourself this morning in one of these three situations. Number one, there's a group of us here this morning and our problem is we're spending time in the wrong places with the wrong people. And that's our problem. We're spending the wrong time in the wrong places with the wrong people. You say, well, that may be true of, of, of middle school, high school students. You know, you got to talk about their friends, you know. Well, well, let me just tell you this. All right, I talked about that a lot when I, was a, when I was a youth pastor for 20 years. That's true for kids, certainly. But I have become convinced that it's just as true for adults. There are some of you adults out there, and your greatest problem is that you're spending so much time with the wrong people in the wrong places, and you need to stop it. You need to get some good, wise friends in your life. There are some of you that have chosen to hang around those people because that's what your heart desires. And so you look around and you go, I have found people that have the same heart tendencies just like I do. And so you find yourself in the wrong places with the wrong people on a regular basis. Chuck Swindoll said this, It's been my observation over the years that the devil never tips his hand in in temptation. He shows you only the beauty, the ecstasy, the fun, the excitement, and the stimulating adventure of stolen desires. But he never tells the heavy drinker, tomorrow morning there'll be a hangover. Ultimately, you'll ruin your family. He never tells the drug user early on, this is the beginning of a long, sorrowful, dead-end road. He never tells the thief, you're going to get caught. Friend, don't do this. You're going to end up behind bars. And he certainly doesn't warn the adulterer. You know pregnancy is a real possibility or you could get a life-threatening disease. Are you kidding? Face it. When the sin is done and all the penalties of that sin come due, the devil is nowhere to be found. He smiles as you fall, but he leaves you with no encouragement when the consequences kick in. So many of us, and we are spending too much time in the wrong places with the wrong people. That's some of you this morning. And by the way, you think you're getting away with it. And for some of you, even in a setting like this, you're kind of looking at it and you're going, I'm just trying to win them to Jesus. If all the people around you, you're just trying to win to Jesus, 
you need to find some people that are already one to Jesus that can challenge and encourage you as well. There has to be a balance. Number two, you may be in this group where you've already made a decision to participate in behavior that is wreaking havoc in your life just under the surface. Even as you sit here today, and if you're a follower of Jesus, maybe there's a little tinge of the Spirit of God bringing conviction to your heart, but you know I'm going to land this plane in just a few moments, and you'll get out of here, and the illusion will have been kept up for another Sunday. But you know you've already got things in your life that are wreaking havoc in your life just under the surface. Maybe the words this morning, running, denial, fear, secrets, maybe one or more of those words certainly fall heavy on your heart today. It's the student who's cheating their way to good grades rather than studying to get those grades. It's the husband or the wife that's unhappy in their marriage and they've convinced themselves they deserve to be happy and so they're involved with another person. It's a man who sits in front of the computer or the high school guy or even the middle school guy night after night lusting after women, telling himself that all guys do this. It's a guy thing. It's the businessman or the businesswoman who's padding that expense account month after month after month with a realization that, or justification that, well, they just don't pay me enough. If they paid me more, I wouldn't have to do this. The reality is that our past always catches up to us. And if it's just under the surface, payday is coming. And then lastly, maybe you're in this category that you've been in one of those two places before, but you've come clean, you've confessed, but you still live with regrets and consequences of your past behavior. And every single day, the devil whispers to you what you've done, who he thinks you really are. Louis Giglio said this, sin doesn't make us bad. He said, no, it's worse than that. Sin makes us dead. But Jesus gives us life. And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, that's what God wants to do in your life. He died. He sent his son Jesus to die, to shed his innocent blood so that there might be mercy, forgiveness, and grace extended to you. David writes in Psalm 51, I love that psalm. He writes it as a prayer of repentance and restoration he acknowledges his sin. He says these words, creating me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And then I love this in verse 12. He says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. And if you're here this morning and you've been there in the past and you're living with those regrets and you're living defeated because you're consistently, constantly reminded of the evil that you've done in the past. I want to remind you that I don't care what you've done. I don't care how far down the wrong road that you've gone. God has been there, will be there to meet you. And in his arms, you're going to find forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Don't buy the lie that says that you can never be forgiven and things can never be good again. That is exactly why we preach the good Good news of the gospel here at Northwest. Because your life can be made new. It can be made different. Like David, it's just as simply as you being honest with where you are. Coming clean before a holy God, yes, but a God that loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to shed his innocent blood on a cross 
to pay a debt that he didn't owe so that a debt that we could never pay on our own could be marked paid in full. That's the good news of the gospel. You're never so far away from God that his mercy and his grace can't provide a way back home. And I want to challenge you this morning, if you find yourself in one of those places, please please don't walk out of here keeping the illusion going. Don't do that. Decide today that I'm going to become clean. I want to be restored once again either to the joy of my salvation because I've already made a decision to cross that line of faith. I'm a follower of Jesus. Or for those of you here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ alone as your Savior, maybe today needs to be the day when you need to come to a God whose arms are open wide and find forgiveness and grace and mercy. I would love for you, if you're in one of those categories, Jerry and I would love to pray with you this morning. We'll both be up front here at the end. Uh, We're going to sing one last song. Uh, I know we're just a a few minutes uh, afternoon, but um, we're going to sing a song. And after we sing that song, I invite you just to come. We'd love to pray with you. Just like David had a choice to make, I can confess or I can cover up. So many of us will do that today as well. We can walk out of the doors keeping the illusion going, or we can find grace, mercy, and forgiveness at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. God, thanks for your word. Thanks for giving us the bad stuff, the stuff that nobody would have wanted to have been written about them. But Saint, thank you that you can use it in our lives in order that in 2016, middle school students, high school students, adults, we can understand that your arms are open wide and grace and mercy and forgiveness is available at the foot of the cross. God, use your spirit to convince us of that reality this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.